Good morning. How's everyone doing? My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here. Uh, I had a sports coat on, but I'm a little bit too proud about this t-shirt my daughter Bea made, so I took it off. But God, we're going to talk about but God today, probably, uh, probably one of the most powerful, profound statements in all of scripture. And we get to study it today as we pick back up in Ephesians. Um, a couple just notes. I'm very excited about the men's and women's classes that are starting tonight. Uh, I think as of last count earlier in the week, there's 55 of you that have signed up for that. If you've not signed up for that, there is still time uh, for the men's and women's classes uh, that'll be going on tonight here at the River Campus. Uh, very excited about opportunities for you guys to fellowship together. Uh, for us to get to know each other, uh, for some uh, pouring in to one another and encouraging one another as we study scripture to look at what God would say about relationships and marriage. Uh, If you're married, you know scripture says you will have a hard time. (laughs) Amen? Amen. It takes some work. Uh, Man, I want to take a moment to just honor... uh, Elder Kent, if you didn't get in at the beginning of the service and missed his invocation, uh, that was a very profound invocation. Uh, It's amazing what scripture can say in two minutes. Uh, And so I just wanted to tell you, Elder Kent, I saw Christ through you simply by you sharing your heart. If you came here today looking for perfect people or people that have it all figured out, you came to the wrong place. Uh, That is not this church. This church is about people who are desperately hanging on to the hope that Christ has given us. We're picking back up in the book of Ephesians. Now, last year, we started in Ephesians, and we went through slowly the very beginning of chapter 1, which uh, we talked about, if you were here, is called a baraka. It is a hymn, basically, that would have been put together. So this is the Apostle Paul, not in Hebrew, but in actually in Greek, uh, giving us sort of this format that would be like a hymn, almost like a poem uh, from first century churches and, and that he had written. And so we, we studied through that because there's a lot of theology, a lot of deep richness in that. And then uh, last week, uh, Pastor Vance picked up in uh, chapter one this prayer that Paul would share with the church in Ephesus. And now we're going to transition into chapter two, in which we go from song, then prayer, and now we're going to get in sort of the recap, some of this, this foundational work that Paul is going to share with the church and remind you and I about the foundations of our faith. And so uh, pick this up with me. Uh, we're going to study five verses. I have 14 pages of notes. We're going to see how this goes. Chapter two, verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And I'm going to stop right there. We made it like eight words. <laughs> you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, I, I, we gloss over this all the time. But when Paul says, you were dead, I was dead, he's not saying, it's not like the princess bride, he's mostly dead. Anyone seen The Princess Bride? If you've not seen The Princess Bride, I'm not sure if we can be friends. (laughs) That is a top five movie of all time. Repent and go watch. Okay, anyways. You're not mostly dead. You're not kind of dead. You were dead, dead. Dead, dead, D-E-D, dead. Like dead. It's dead. 
Like my kids, when they don't plug in their phones every single night, dead, right? And what we're trying to get to when we say dead is that it wasn't like uh, kind of bad or kind of dead or like you almost made it but not quite or like good try, we'll get them next time. Dead, corpse, cold. Jesus actually talked about this when he sees the Pharisees in the midst of their just religiosity. Yes, I just made that word up. And he looks at all this religiousness and the self-righteousness and they have all this quote unquote morality. And he says, dead. And here's what he says in Matthew 23, 23 through 38. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to, a third time, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like, ready, white-washed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You're dead. You're a corpse. You can't even consider what is righteous. Ezekiel 36, 26 talks about this. It says, a prophecy from Ezekiel, and I will, this is God speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. These are, this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the core tenets of this doctrine called depravity or total depravity, depending on how Calvinist you are. And why does this matter? It's because this, you you didn't make yourself alive. The, the, the corpse on the hospital table doesn't like peek one eye open, reach over to the defibrillator and put it on his own heart. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. I wasn't dead in my sins. And then I, one day I was like, you know, I've got an idea. This isn't going real well. Let me revive myself. You were dead. Dead, dead. And the... the the initiation, the start of salvation had to occur with someone who was alive because you were dead. So it had to be somebody else because the dead can't start anything. Dead, enslaved, condemned because of our trespasses and sins. Verse two, in which you once walked. He's talking about everybody. When he says you, he doesn't mean them over there. He means you. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. We don't like to talk about him a lot because we're Baptists. <laughs> following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's the sons of disobedience? Everyone that's dead. It's universal. Verse three, among whom we 
all, he's trying to get this across, right? It wasn't just Greeks that he's talking to. It wasn't just people in Ephesus that he was talking to. He's talking to Jews. He's talking to everyone. You and I universally, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He's talking about this. Every single person since the Garden of Eden, since chapter 3 of Genesis, shares the same nature, a nature of lawlessness, dead in your trespasses and sins. Driscoll would say this in his commentary, human depravity is an undeniable reality. And it explains why wars are fought, lawsuits are filed, arguments are had, doors are locked, and guns are loaded. Even atheists know humans are not as they should be. Amen? Verse 3 mentions the, pri the three primary enemies of God. Satan, the world, and the flesh. Satan, the world, and the flesh. Those are the three enemies of God. And because they're the enemies of God, they are the enemies of the children of God. So when you come to faith in Christ, they are your enemies, and they will, all three, work against you and against all kingdom efforts. Therefore, at the moment of salvation, you and I gain three new enemies. Satan, the world, and the flesh. Now, I'm not going to go into detail of all three, but I'll just tell you this. Amongst denominations and across the spectrum of the Christian church, we have a tendency to focus really heavily on one and ignore some others, right? So we're Baptists, so we almost never say the Holy Spirit. It's just weird. I, I don't know what it is. Like The Trinity for someone that's like really, really reformed is like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scripture. And we just leave them out. I, it, it, but everybody does this. You go to really charismatic churches, it, 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 you know, you, they'll, they'll look at, oh man, the enemy's at work, the enemy's at work, the enemy, but they never want to talk about the flesh. We're Baptists, so we love to talk about the flesh. <laughs> like, it's my flesh, brother. It's just, I don't know, it's something wrong with me. But we don't want to talk about the spirit because that really freaks us out. You know what I'm talking about? Like if I say, if I say the Holy Spirit too many times, it's like Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Like I don't, I don't want to, I don't know what's going to pop up. It's probably a terrible reference. Okay. <laughs> We're going to edit that out of the video. <laughs> okay. Point about these three enemies is just this. Everyone has a tendency to ignore one and highlight the other, but all three are at work against kingdom efforts, against God and against you. So just keep that in mind. Now, there are three aspects of spiritually dead people that we see in these first three verses. And the reason we're going to go through them, and they're so important, is not just for us to remember where we were, but they're going to tell us a lot about the world that we're supposed to be evangelizing in. Three aspects of spiritually dead people. I'll give them all to you. We printed like two full pages of lines in your bulletin so you could take all these notes. All right. <clears throat> Number one says, lived in the lusts of your flesh. That is emotional depravity. It says, indulged, this is all in the verse, uh, verses one through three, indulged in the desire of your body. That is physical depravity. And then it also says, indulged in the desires of your mind. That is rational depravity. So emotional, physical, and rational depravity. I'm going to walk through what that means because there's a lot of syllables in those words. All right. Emotional depravity. Now, 
The actual Greek word here that is used in this verse is epithemia. It's a Greek word that, that means it, it's used and translated as lust, but it would mean a deep desire, a deep longing, a passionate longing for. And we would call that lusting after or a, a deep desire. Now, mankind has a deep-seated desire, a wanting inside of them, that, that, a sense that something is not right. Something is broken. Something is incomplete. And, and, and we keep working on, on ways to fix it, sometimes intentionally, but a lot of times just sort of it is our nature, as the nature of lawlessness, is we try to fill this thing up because something is wrong. We try, to, we try to satiate it. And nothing works. In all of human endeavor, we see it over and over again as we try to fill this up with things because we know something's not right, and so we just keep struggling at it. Solomon, King Solomon, will write almost an entire book about the folly of human endeavors. Trying to do this, trying to satiate this hunger that we can't explain, explaining the, the folly of man trying to fix himself when it comes to human endeavors. And there's this downward spiral that just kind of occurs when it comes to the human rationale. We, we keep trying to fix this, right? And we keep thinking we're going to logic our way out of this. So intellectually, we're, we're going to get it someday. We're going to be enlightened. And we're going to fix the problem. The self-help industry in the United States is an $11 billion a year industry. How's it going for you? Have we self-helped our way out of it yet? Have we been enlightened out of it? We are today, today, listen, more informed than ever in human history, right? Libraries and libraries and libraries of content are available at your fingertips. From the internet, in, in four seconds, you can get answers to anything. Are we more content? Are we more satisfied? We're wealthier we're smarter, we have access to more information, we should be living at the pinnacle of humanity. And satisfaction and contentment is at a low, not a high. People aren't happier, they're worse, they're more depressed, they're sadder, there's more suicide, there's brokenness. Why haven't we fixed ourselves? Because you're a corpse. Dead people don't fix themselves. This is rational depravity. You are not thinking your way out of this problem. We have physical depravity. You know, Sigmund Freud would actually talk about this, who is not a believer at all. We look at Freud for all kinds of weird statements, but he nailed this as someone who is a secular uh, <clears throat> a doctor. He said this, men, listen to this quote from Sigmund Freud, men are not gentle friendly creatures wishing for love who simply defend themselves if they are attacked, but that a powerful measure of desire for aggression has to be reckoned as part of their instinctual endowment. The result is that their neighbor is to them not only, not only a possible helper or sexual object, but also a temptation to them to gratify their aggressiveness on him, to exploit his capacity for work without recompense, to use him sexually without his consent, to seize his possessions, to humiliate him, to cause him pain, to torture, and to kill him. Homo homini lupus, man is a wolf. Who has the courage to dispute it in the face of all the evidence in his own life and in history? Sigmund Freud. 
We have a physical depravity, the lust of the flesh. There is something in us, something carnal in us that desires to take all the time, that desires our comfort over everyone else's comfort. And we fight it all the time. And we've erected laws just so that we can get along with each other. So that, and, and look, 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 I've said this over and over again. If you've ever watched two children, if you've ever had kids, you know this. Because before you can teach them anything, if they, have, they want something and the other kid has it, they just smack their sister and take it and you're like who taught you no one taught them that it's their nature we love physical comfort love it and it can overwhelm us my relatives we've been doing this uh building this little side house for them and so it's all brand new so before they laid the bathroom tile floor they had someone lay coils under the tile and you can touch a button and it heats the bathroom floor Y'all, we have reached the height of human comfort at this point. I mean, it, there's nothing bougier <laughs> than warming your toes on your bathroom tile. I told my kids, grandma and grandpa's house is so bougie that whenever you drink something in their house, you have to put your pinky finger up. <laughs> and so every time, they, he's got this little like juice box and he's like, <laughs> we love physical comfort to the detriment of everyone else and ourselves. Physical depravity, rational depravity, describing emotional depravity, physical depravity, rational depravity. These are the three. Describing the uh, pervasiveness of this depravity, J.C. Rowell said this, sin pervades and runs through every part of our moral constitution and every faculty of our minds. The understanding, the affections, the reasoning powers, the will are all more or less affected. So, rationally, emotionally, physically, lost, dead in sin. This is our nature. Now, I'm, I'm trying to... I'm trying to make sure you have a foundation. And that's what Paul's doing. He's giving us this foundation of how far we were from God, how hopeless the situation was from this in order to establish some things for the church of Ephesus as a foundation. And we'll talk about this perspective change and why it's necessary to make sure we have a clear view of this. But I would just read this. Uh, as you're struggling, everyone, everyone, everyone at some point has recognized that it is a struggle. Self-control is a struggle. Temptation is a struggle. Whether you're a believer or not, you have this understanding. James 1, 13 through 15 would say this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Church, we aren't going to self-help our way out of the dysfunction and brokenness of this world. Now, at this point in Paul's writing, it's very hopeless. He's purposefully making sure that you understand the hopelessness of the situation. And, and maybe today, whether you're online or here in person, this is, this is you. I mean, maybe you have been here, but maybe you are here today where nothing really satisfies, nothing really helps. You, you drink and drink and drink and yet you're still thirsty. You scratch and scratch and scratch and yet there's still an itch. You eat and eat and eat and are never satisfied. 
People recommend a lot of things that don't fix the problem, and the problem cannot be fixed by numbing it. And, and that's often how we try to do that. We have a culture now that has tried to numb this problem. We do it with drugs, we do it with alcohol, we do it with all sorts of abuses in order to, if I, could just, if I could just stop feeling this way for some period of time, then I would feel better because I can't feel this way because this discontentment I can't seem to deal with. Look, it can't be ignored by getting busy. We do that too, we get really busy. You get busy with work, with friends, with raising kids, etc. But it can't be satiated with more sex or more money, more fame, more indulgence, because sooner or later, there's a moment where I'm gonna stop and I have a sober moment. I get a brief respite from all the noise of the world and I know deep down, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. No one else is hopeless until verse four. It's terminal cancer. It's leprosy. You're on that plane crashing to the ground. You're on the runaway train. I don't care what you, what you look at, what analogy you look at. It is hopeless, and there's no chance at all. You can't do it, but God. But God. There's no powerful statement in Scripture than but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice the direction, not us loving him, because he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved, but God. But God is three things that we're gonna talk about, this statement of but God that we see in Ephesians 2. But God is the introduction of the gospel. But God is the introduction of the gospel. But God is the foundation of the gospel. And but God is the center of all Christian living. But God. But God. The introduction to the gospel. You and I did not seek God. I want to be very clear. He initiated this on his own. There, there was no point in your life, if Christian, if, if you know God now, there was no point in your life where you, of your own accord, as a dead corpse, got the bright idea that you should go seek God. But God came and found you. He initiated this in your heart. Romans 3, 10, uh, uh, Romans 3, 10 and 11 would say this, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. No one seeks God. Now, many of us will think back to this point where, where we begin to be interested about spiritual things, where we begin to, to, to know something was wrong or, or see something different or begin to, to be attracted into church or, or a Bible study or, or a Christian believer or a friend or just something begin to woo us and lure us and, attra- and there was this attraction to it, but that wasn't of our own doing. But God did that. That is God wooing you in. That is him awakening your heart. That is him taking the spiritual defibrillator and putting it on you and going, waking you up to the things of God because until then you were buried and you were dead and the corpse was cold and there was no reviving you but God. But God. The fact that God must initiate this for us for it to even begin is both 
a description of how hopeless the situation was and how hopeful we get to be because of it. Hopeless in that without this, we were goners and dead and hopeful because of the but God. But God. The but God is the message of hope to the believer and to a broken world. Listen to me. This is, this is, it will never, the message will never be but Daniel. It will never be but you self-help. It will always be but God. Always. And, and, and guys, we have investigated this. I mean, millennia of human intellect trying to find a way around this, and we end up in full circle in the same spot in 2022, but God. It is the introduction to the gospel. Secondly, but God is the foundation of the gospel. The gospel, the entire salvation message of Jesus Christ coming for us and God's holy work in that all is founded upon but God. Everything in and about the gospel, us being lost and dead and condemned and enslaved and hopeless and Jesus coming to make a way through his life, his substitutionary atonement on the cross, his resurrection and defeating sin and death is only good news if God did it, not us. Because if it was up to us, it wouldn't be good news. You see, if you read scripture, every time power is demonstrated in scripture, it is a but God moment. There was no earth, there was no water, there was no sky, but God. There was, there was nothing good in this world, but God. There was no covenant with Abraham, but God. Jacob was a trickster, but God. Joseph was prideful, but God. The Israelites rebelled a lot, but God. Goliath was far too big, but God. Jericho was too strong, but God. David sinned, but God. Do you see a pattern here? The very message, the very foundation of the gospel is but God. It's why we can have confidence to put our faith in him because it's never been based on but Daniel or but you or but me. It's always been but God. The only thing worth putting faith in in this world is but God. No man, no human endeavor, but God. Second Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 would say this. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. It is the foundation of the gospel. It is the introduction of the gospel. It is the foundation of the gospel. And it is the center of Christian living. Now, how is the statement, but God, the center of ongoing Christian Living. Let me explain, uh, and, and I've probably talked about this a lot over the course of the past five or six years. At, at the very core of once you're a believer, uh, trying to understand what this whole pursuit of God looks like is, is this pushing off of this um, idea that there's some sort of checklist, okay? And, and if you're raised in church, you're very familiar with checklists, amen? 
Okay, we all are. We have traditions. I mean, I used to, I'm Baptist. We had the envelopes where you got to score points on your envelope based on if I brought my Bible, if I brought a guest, if I tithe today, if I was in it. Did, you, did no one else get the, it? am I the only person that had these envelopes? Okay, there's five of us. Check boxes. We had check boxes to tell me if I was doing a good job. <clears throat> the Pharisees had check boxes. They checked a lot of boxes. We just read what Jesus said about them. At the core of Christian living is this idea that I need to stay desperate for Jesus, that I need to cherish Jesus, that I need to be in love with Jesus. And the problem is that, number one, as a corpse, I definitely wasn't loving anybody. And even once I'm awakened and I want to pursue this relationship with God, I've got to figure out, Christian, how to cherish Jesus, how to be in love with Jesus. Now, that is incredibly difficult, amen? No one just wills themselves into it. No one goes, I've decided I'm going to love him, so I'm going to love him. It doesn't work that way. We're emotional beings. And this is the challenge of being a pastor. I can't make you love Jesus. If I had a stick, <laughs> a love stick, and I could just, just hit people over the head, and they would, I would do it. You guys would have bruises. This is, the, this is the struggle. This is the challenge. How, how do I, every day, get up and be in love with Jesus? And let's be honest. I mean, look, come on. You don't wake up every day in love with Jesus. If you, don't lie to me. You don't wake up every day in love with Jesus. How do we cherish him? And look, you have to cherish him. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we love to read the other part. All things are going to work together for good, brother. Haven't you read the scriptures? For those who love God, love God. 2 Timothy 4, 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing, tolerated his appearing, kind of liked, not Facebook official yet, loved his appearing. First Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, our Lord come. Accursed? The center of Christian living is not some sort of moral fiber, not some sort of checklist, not a to-do list. It is a relationship in which you and I learn what it's like to stoke the fire of loving God. God awakened us. He put a heart of flesh in us. He saved us. He reconciled us. Now, how do I fall more deeply in love with him? That's the center of Christian living. You're not going to find a checklist for it. There are going to be some things that you can do. There are going to be ways that work for me and you and others, and some of them are going to be unique because stirring up your affection, stoking the embers or the flames of this relationship with God, learning how to fall more deeply in love with God is at the very center of Christian living. And all the other stuff, I'll be honest with you, is probably noise or a byproduct of either doing it or not doing it. How, this is the question, believer, that you must answer in your Christian walk. 
How do I stir up this desire? How do I learn how to cherish Jesus more and more and more every day? Not how do I become more moral, more self-righteous, how to make sure I trick everyone else to thinking that I'm really good on Sunday so I can get home and do it. No, 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 no. Every day, wake up and fall more deeply in love with Jesus. What does that even look like? And what does that mean when I wake up some days and I don't love Jesus at all, or I go through my whole day working, and I don't even think about Jesus. I barely even remembered that I was a Christian until I said some swear words, and then I had to repent. How do I do that? How do I do that? Because to not have a longing and a hunger toward Jesus would be a very bad sign. I mean, re- read through these scriptures, and what you're going to find is that if there is no love for Jesus, that's really a marker that the conversion has not happened, or that we are really sliding away from the very thing that gives us life. Do I love Jesus? Did I love Jesus at some point? Have I ever loved Jesus? And that, that hunger that is at war, the hunger for Jesus is going to be in us at war with the enemies that we mentioned earlier. There is a war in every believer's life for your affection. There is a battle for your affections. God is, James 4, 5 would say it this way, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell in us? Jesus desires your affections. He desires your affections. I want you to just, for a second, think about this. He, des- of all the things that God could want, right? He has everything, but he desires your affection. I want you to think about if you've ever had kids, nephews, nieces, Right? When that child looks at you beaming and says, oh, I love you, and, and gives you a big hug, right? And you're like, oh, that, that is just a, a, a poor example, a poor reflection of what our heavenly father desires. He desires our hearts. And the byproduct of our obedience, um, of, of our morality, of our righteousness, that, 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 that all is produced from that desire. It's not the other way around, right? We don't just, I'll just morality my way into this. No, no, no. It's, it's about falling in love with God and falling in love with God more and more, which then pushes off these other enemies that want our affection. We can all admit that the world, all of these things around us want our affections, correct? Our, 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 Physical desires, they they want our affections. The world tells us all the things that should have our affections. Rationally, at times, you can do a great job. Let me tell you, I can do a great job self-justifying why I should have things that I want. Everything is fighting for our heart in this world. But there's, there's one thing that actually gives life and everything else produces death especially when we get these things out of order, Christians. Money, time, fame, family, comfort, luxury, pride, all of these things scream at us trying to get our attention, trying to get our, what I would call mind share, trying to get us to dwell and think upon them. And yet the battle for our hearts, ultimately, now that God has awakened you and put a heart of flesh in you, the whole struggle of the Christian faith is to wake up every day and go, okay, 
There's now a war going on. See, you see, there was no war going on when you were dead. There was no fight when you were dead. You were a corpse. There's nothing to fight over. You weren't in a struggle. You were just dead. But, but, now, that, but now that God has awakened you, you you've got you to figure out, uh, how do I stir up my affections for Jesus? How do I safeguard my affections from going to other things that were man-made and they may be good things, but I never want to trade in my affections for the things of creation instead of the creator himself? How how do I do that? Because listen, look look at our world today at the things people are willing to give their affections for. You know, it was like a year or two ago when they had that whole thing on uh, January 6th, there were people literally ready to give up their life and storm the Capitol building because a different politician got elected. What? You're going to give your life for that? Look at the way people are getting in fist fights at football games today in the playoffs. I, I guarantee you someone's going to get a fight. And you're going to be like, for uh, what exactly? There's a war for your affection. And when you're not careful, you'll give it to stupid stuff. Like just really dumb stuff. Like it's so dumb that we could put it in the Bible next to the Israelites and we'd all go, Karen. Sorry, Karen. Apologize. Karen's a wonderful lady. All right. Back on track. How do I safeguard my affections for... Let me say this about stirring up your affection. Um, I think for every every believer, stirring up your affection for Jesus is is a little bit different, okay? And, And I encourage you heavily, heavily to investigate what it looks like for you particularly to stir up your affection, Right? And I've mentioned some of mine. Like one of the big ones that I know works for me is hearing other people's testimonies, particularly when it's real time, like, like it's happening right now. So your testimony 20 years ago is good, but your testimony this past week of what God did on your behalf, when it was, there was no hope, when everything was lost, when it was as dark as can be, but God, man, I, goosebumps, weepy tears, right? I mean, like it, it's like a Hallmark movie for some of you. So, so what I shared uh, two weeks ago, you know, when I was having a rough week and I have this call from a neighbor who, who begins to tell me his but God story, who has saved his marriage and brought his wife back from substance abuse, substance abuse and put his whole family back together and put them all in a house again. Like I'm, I'm losing it on the phone, right? I'm just, I got tears everywhere because that stirs up my affection for Jesus. You have some. And, and, and I'll tell you this, I don't know what they are specifically, but I'll tell you this, they're, they're going to involve scripture. They're going to involve a perspective of something that resets, reorients your perspective back on God. They're going to involve looking at his faithfulness in the past, looking at what he's doing now and looking at his promise for the future. They always will. They always will. I don't know the specifics. Some of you are musically talented and you'll get a guitar and you'll start singing and that will stir up your affection for Jesus. You don't want to hear me sing. That's why I do it in the car by myself. But you have some and you, you got to know what they are. Like, I can't implore you enough. Like that's worthy of your time to figure those things out, figure out how do I stoke this fire? How, how do I reorient my perspective back to the father, back to Jesus so I can fall more deeply in love with him so I can safeguard my affections from the things that want them and give them to the creator who earned them. They matter. Now, maybe not the specifics of how this will work for you, but, but at least the formula of how this works is actually in our text today. 
What the text is going to say is, is, is that the way we reorient ourselves to stir up our affection for Jesus is that we look back and we remember who we were before we met Jesus. Amen? How many of you remember who you were before you met Jesus? Brother, I am not the guy you wanted to meet before Jesus. I was a mess but God. And here's the best part. I am a mess, but God. And I will be a mess, but God. And that, that reorients my perspective to continue to consider what God has done on my behalf. The there are a lot of explanations for this. I've used the term stir up your affection. Uh, we, ter- we used the term last year, epinosis, right? Metabolizing the gospel as the knowledge of God begins to seep into our bones. And today I want to use this analogy. Maybe this will help. Uh, any, anyone here ever made tea? I know this is a very English thing, right? We're, we're kind of coffee drinkers. I understand. We already conquered them. Uh, <clears throat> God save the queen. Anyways, if you've ever made tea, right? You take a tea bag and you put it in the water, and it's called what? It's called steeping. Now, consider this, okay? When, when I'm talking about stirring up your affection for Jesus to fall in love, what would happen, okay, if you took the tea bag in the hot water and you went, bloop, and took it back out? Nothing, okay? This is discipleship for many of you who show up for one hour at church. I said it. Bloop, yep. Does it taste like tea? Well, it kind of tastes like water. No kidding. (laughs) I wonder why that is. Why do you think that is? What if, though, what if I took it and I just let it sit in the hot water, just considered the faithfulness of God in my past, how he has but God over and over and over again when I didn't deserve it? how he has provided for me when I didn't really earn it, how he has taken a wretch of a person with no redeeming qualities and cleaned him up and clothed him in the finest linens and put the ring on his finger and slayed the fatted calf and brought him into the party and not one ounce of it did he deserve. What if every day when I wake up, he put his spirit inside me to remind me, to guide me, to take someone who was absolutely not gentle, but God. I was talking to a pastor friend this week and I said, you know, uh, there's a personality test called the Myers-Briggs personality. I have the worst possible personality for being a pastor. Like you could not pick a worse one, but God. I don't want to be a pastor at all. My dad's a pastor. Both my grandfathers were pastors. I was like, no way, but God. And you just let that gospel seep into your bones and you just hold it there and you consider God's faithfulness and you consider what God's doing in your life and you consider the promises of God in your future. And you let the gospel steep into your life. When we talk about the necessity for 
dwelling on scripture. It's not that you just read through some scripture really fast. It's that you let it steep into you. When we say you should have a quiet time with God, it's not that there's some checkbox that will help. It's what we're saying is you've got to let that tea bag sit for a little while. When we say it is so important for you to, to be in a small group, in a community of believers to help guard your affections from the world, but also to help encourage your affections, what we're saying is it's going to take time because the teabag can't just be dipped in and pulled out. You're going to have to sit with them. You're going to have to mourn with them. You're going to have to cry with them. You're going to have to repent with them. You're going to have to encourage them. You're going to have to do life with them so that it seeps in. And it begins to take over every part of your life so that your affections will grow. Does this make sense? We were, apart from Christ, dead, enslaved, condemned. We lived in the lust of the flesh. We indulged in the desire of the body and indulged in the desires of the mind. Emotional, physical, and rational depravity but God being rich in mercy. The introduction of the gospel, the foundation of the gospel in the very center of Christian living is but God. I said I was only going to read this if I have time and I don't have time and I'm going to do it anyway. So <clears throat> I want you to close your eyes. I just want to read to you from John 15, Jesus describing what it means to steep in him, to steep in the gospel. This is him describing it. Close your eyes. I just want you to think about and allow this to soak in. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. I've, I've already woken you up. I've already resurrected you. I've already raised you from the dead. Abide in me. Steep in me. Metabolize me. Fall in love with me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. What do you need to walk out of here remembering today? At the heart of the gospel, at the heart of Christian living, at the heart of your life pursuing Jesus is this idea that God did it on your behalf without you ever <laughs> lifting a finger because you were dead. And, and the, the work now of the Christian life is learning how to abide in, to steep in Jesus so that you fall more deeply in love with him. And listen, he will change everything about your life, whether you want it changed or not, and it'll be amazing, amazing. I look at my life and realize that... Uh, if I'm being really honest, I am, I am an absolute wreck of a human being, but God. That my marriage will absolutely fail, but God. That there's no possible way I am gonna do a good job parenting these four kids, but God. That, that relationship for you right now, guys, that is failing, that is hopeless, that will never be resolved and will fail. But God, the addiction that you cannot seem to get over or shake no matter how hard you try is absolutely hopeless in your life. But God, 
Your kids that you desperately want to see to know Jesus are dead in their sin, but God, your family members will never come to Jesus, but God. We will walk out of here today into a dark, dead world overflowing with hope and encouragement because of, but God. I'm gonna give you two invitations to leave with today. In a moment, we're actually gonna follow the biblical ordinance meant for us to help remember where we were, what lays in store for us, and what Jesus did. We're gonna be taking communion here in just a second. For you, the person that has held off putting your full faith in the arms of Jesus Christ, you need a but God moment in your life. You know it. It's why the world feels hopeless. It's why things like the church and the Bible and Christians and and these spiritual things keep coming up. They keep circling back into your life. They keep pulling you back in and you don't know why. That is God resurrecting you from being a corpse, putting the spirit in you and wooing you to relationship. I know it's weird. I know you probably never do it, but God, but I'm gonna give you an opportunity in just a moment to come up and speak with one of our elders so we can talk about what life in Christ looks like and how you can take next steps. I'm gonna invite you to come to the altar to talk to someone about, but God. For the Christian that has struggled with their affections for God, you struggled in some area where you just, you deeply desire a but God moment. We wanna pray for you. We wanna encourage you. We wanna remind you about the goodness and faithfulness of God. And if you just want to come and you don't even want to talk to anybody, if you just need to come and pray at the altar, we want the altar to be open for you. We want to normalize repentance and reverent prayer. That's something that we as believers do because we know that we were dead in our sin, but God. You move as the Lord leads. We're going to play a song and then take communion.